we always talk about farms themselves. We try to get them as isolated as possible, but those feed mills are really an epicenter for so many things, not just the farms, but you have all those ingredient suppliers coming in as well. And so you're right. We've had some studies out of Vietnam looking at ASF specifically. And of the like 17 samples that were ASF positive, one of them came from a feed ingredient and the rest of them primarily were um, centered around boots of workers, the truck cabs themselves, the tires. And so really those are the risks we can focus and control the best and what we found to be more concerning than the feed and feed ingredients themselves. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast for Wise Genetics. I'm Adam Farenholz here at North Carolina State University. Today, my guest is a PhD candidate in the Department of Animal Science at Kansas State University, working in the area of animal food safety, Olivia Harrison. Hello, Olivia. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. So, um, as we've done with our previous guests on, on the podcast, our, our interest is in having a conversation about some of the things that you're working on and how those things will impact the, uh, the animal food, animal feed, um, and overall production animal in- industries uh, in general. But before we get to that, if you would introduce yourself to the audience and give us a little bit of background on um, you know, kind of what you, what you went through in school and how you ended up getting to where you're at today. Yeah. Um, So I'm originally from central Illinois, and I grew up in the show pig industry, which really started my passion in um, animal science and getting me into the livestock world. So I decided to come to K-State as an undergrad, where I was really fortunate with a lot of great opportunities. Um, I started research pretty young in my undergrad career. I had a project, helped with a project, I guess, with the Applied Swine Nutrition team when I was a freshman before having a couple projects with Cassie Jones um, my sophomore and junior year, which really was the connection that got me into grad school. So I started grad school in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic, always a fun time, um, under Cassie Jones and then Dr. Valentina Trinetta in food science here at K-State. And I primarily worked with um, salmonella in feed, looking at that connection between feed, um, having contaminated feed, and what that does to the pig itself. So I did a bioassay looking at 
the presence of salmonella um, after inoculation um, and feed water and air. And then finishing that up in 2021, I stayed on for my PhD um, with Cassie and I worked pretty closely for, with Chad Polk and Jordan Gebhardt as well as Jason Woodworth to do my big project, which was within our feed um, safety research center, so the FSRC here at K-State, where we inoculated feed with Seneca Valley virus, um, PERS, and PEDV, and we looked at mitigation using chemical uh, mitigants, as well as equipment decontamination using heat or chlorine dioxide um, to understand really what that presence is within that feed mill and how do we get it out of there. Excellent. So there's there's a lot of fun stuff that we can uh, dive into on that. So let's, uh, we're, I'm going to stick a little bit with the background here to yeah. begin with. So for those that may not be um, aware of some of the names that, that she shared, uh, some of those folks are part of the uh, uh, the swine nutrition and, and the applied swine group there at uh, Kansas State. Uh, Dr. Chad Polk is over in the uh, Department of Grain Science with the feed milling uh, program that's over there as well. Um Cassie Jones was a part of that and then moved over to animal science. And a lot of folks should recognize that name as someone who's done a lot of work on the, um, along with uh, Dr. Polk and, and Dr. Stark there as well, done a lot of work on the animal food safety side of things of uh, pathogen and disease transmission through feed. And so it's become a, a very unique program there at, at Kansas State that you're a part of. Um, so, I, let's start off with, I think, what is kind of an interesting one before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of the, the scary parts about <laughs> the stuff you work with. Why don't you describe to folks what it is like to do a study like that in that particular facility? Because it's really pretty much the only one of its kind when we designed it way back in starting in 2010 or so, I think is when we started designing the BSL-2 uh, kind of pilot feed mill, and uh, there's really nothing else like it. I think that's mostly because nobody else wants to have anything like that because of how complicated it is to do the studies in there. Yep. So why don't you explain to folks what that process is like? Yeah. So the FSRC is a four-story pilot um, feed mill. It has a working, I believe, one-ton pellet mill in there, um, and you can bring in any equipment you want. So we brought in um, a 50 pound and a 100 pound mixer into there. We have a bucket. We had two different bucket elevators in there, as well as a corn cleaner, um, a pilot. It's a CL5, I believe. Pellet mill was in there as well. Um, so we would bring all that equipment in and kind of work around the existing structures in there um, for our feed that, to run our feed through. But when we would be in containment, we definitely look like those space aliens where we see in those scary science movies. So, you know, you're coming in and it's all negative pressure. I think we have 14 HEPA filters going at all times and you're putting on, you know, FSRC specific clothes. You're going into one airlock, letting all the air, shutting both doors, heading into another airlock and then heading into containment. So, Again, all negative pressure going in there. Um, and once you're in there, you're pretty much in there for the entire time. So um, we would be in there. I think the longest we were in there was about getting close to that um, 12-hour mark. So that was a fun day. We had some power outages around campus. So we were terrified to open any of those airlocks and lose pressure. 
Um, and so we're in there. And when we're working with formaldehyde or chlorine dioxide for our IBC and everything, we were wearing full face respirators the entire time. So we definitely had that space alien look to us and our all white coveralls and everything. And then to exit containment, we would have to leave all clothes in there, shower out, um, and then before putting on our own clothes. So kind of similar to what we see in a lot of our swine farms nowadays, with just a little bit more um, kind of safety in there with the all of the airlocks and the seals around the doors and the negative pressure. But yeah, it's definitely scary. You, I didn't want to touch any pigs. Obviously, I wasn't allowed um, near any contact. But even all those fine nutrition grad students, we stayed away for a very long time to make sure there was no cross contamination there. Yep, for sure. Yeah. So for for all of uh, all of you folks listening, there are some of you that have maybe had to do work in in mills where you've worked with some products that aren't the most pleasant and have had to wear respirators. And we've got a few folks out there in mills. And obviously, like you said, certainly on farms that do shower in, shower out. Um, but the combination of all of that, as well as being locked in the in the room under negative pressure is a uh, re- really unique experience uh, that we don't really replicate anywhere else. Um, and then there's obviously the research that you were doing uh, that we'll get into here in a second, as far as the, um, you know, looking at what can decontaminate facilities if they were to get some sort of a, of a, a, um, a pathogen introduced into them, not to mention just the overall, you know, trying to keep it out of the feed. Um, but that facility as a research facility then obviously has to be decontaminated well when the whole process is done. Um, and so we're, you know, from the original designs, and I, I believe still today, it's kind of a, a one-week prep and in the study, and then a one-week pre- uh, kind of teardown after that. So, can you describe what it is that in a research facility we would have to do to fully decontaminate it? And then we'll talk about what we think might actually be practical in the real world. Yeah, exactly. So this was actually part of our reps as well. It was one of our treatments to have as our positive control. But to completely decontaminate everything, you know, we're taking apart all of the equipment as much as we can to prep for this. So um, getting all of the panels off of the front of equipment, opening up those bucket elevators as much as possible, um, exposing as much of that equipment to um, the power washing we'll go through as possible. And then we'll also wrap motors with um, garbage bags and tape them up to try to avoid them getting wet. Um, which was mostly successful. Nothing broke on us. So always good to see. So we would do that. And then we would go through our organic matter removal. So this is just um, washing everything down, getting all of that feed um, kind of sucked up. We would have vacuums in there to try to vacuum up as much physical matter as possible. And that way it could go into our biohazard bins. Um, I guess it's important to note when we're doing this, we would have about 14 like 40 gallon biohazard bins in there with us at all times. And that's where all of the feed would have to go. And it had to go through all of the decontamination with us. Um, So we would throw as much away as possible. And then we would go through and we would have a double wash. So we would wash everything first with Furcon um, at concentration levels with our power washer. So our power washer is outside on the dock. And then we just have hoses running into um, piped in through the walls and everything for power washing itself. 
Um, and then after that, we would do a rinse down and follow that up with bleach again at concentration levels. So I think we were running at 5% bleach the entire time. Um, and then we start my favorite part personally is the heat up phase of this because we don't have to be in there. Uh, so the FSRC is pretty unique. It has um, a couple steam heaters in there. And so we were able to within about 36 hours on all three floors, reach 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then once we reach that 140 degrees Fahrenheit, we have to hold at that temperature for 48 hours. Um, once we hit that 48 hour mark, we go in, turn everything off. Um, but we take samples before we can open up, um, turn the heaters off, but we have to take samples before we can turn decontamination off itself. So taking samples from those surfaces, turning those into the KSU um, diagnostic lab, testing for all of our viruses before we're able to turn decontamination off and open up doors and begin cooling down the FSRC itself. Sure. So that process, when you take your samples and and you analyze it, is that a successful way of, of basically removing all of the pathogens of concern? Did that work? Yeah, we really only, the very first time we were in the FSRC, we ran 10 reps throughout there. So our very first cycle through, um, the only trouble we had is we had a new bucket elevator we hadn't worked with before. And we found when I was reaching up into the bucket elevator, we couldn't clean it. We were finding still um, like Seneca and PDV. So what happened is Charles Stark was actually just on a ladder power washing and pouring bleach directly down um, to really decontaminate that as well as possible. But other than that, we figured out kind of the tricks for that specific bucket elevator and we had no difficulties the other nine reps. Um, and once we finished everything up, we took samples around just the regular mill as well. And we didn't find any contamination within the warehouse, which is right next to the FSRC or on any of the upper floors. So all of that does the job, but it's obviously not feasible when we're talking about our regular feed mills. Right. Exactly. Okay. So let's jump in then into, and let's kind of start at the beginning. When we talk about the potential concerns of there being a biological adulterant of some sort in feed that would make animals sick or cause a significant disease. Obviously, when we're talking about something like a bacterial issue like salmonella, we're, we're mostly concerned about the animals getting sick or there's not, a, there's not a disease concern versus the really scary side on the other side where we're talking about a viral uh, a viral impact that's moving from potentially ingredients into feed or some other fomite source coming off trucks, shoes, whatever, into feed, getting to animals, and then it's spreading for, through the population. So what? let's start at the very beginning. Like I said, what are the most concerning pathogens that we are looking at, that you guys have looked at, and what are the most concerning uh routes by which we would expect those to potentially get to the feed mill and potentially contaminate feed? Yeah, um, definitely big questions there. I think at the top of everyone's mind is always going to be ASF. Um, I just got back from Minnesota, actually, for our U.S. ship, so the Swine Health Improvement Plan, which is a basically a planning group for what happens in case of ASF or CSF. Um, introduction in the United States. And there's a whole committee dedicated to feed biosafety with that. And so I think top of the concern here, but as we look at 
um, endemic viruses, PERS having that resurgence. I think there was um, a study that is in the rounds of completing submission that looks at PERS in the feed, and they think it was the introduction into a sow farm. Um, so I think endemically PERS and PEDV are still a concern here, and we've taken a lot of steps to reduce that risk of transmission through the feed, but it's always um, a great vector to look at, and also they're great viruses to at least understand endemically what's happening before we have to worry about those foreign animal diseases as well. Um, that risk of introduction, that your guess is almost as good as mine sometimes. We spend a lot of time doing some epi work. Um, Grace Houston, who was under Dr. Gebhardt, as well as Dr. Cassie Jones here, who graduated in January, she had a couple epi studies looking at, okay, we had a farm break. Where did that transmission come from? Where did that introduction come from? And really, we don't know. Um, our best guess is always going to be um, more of that human movement itself coming from farms, getting into the feed itself. We spend a lot of time focusing on wheels, um, going over pits as we're unloading feed itself. Um, we're not saying that is the risk of contamination, but it's an easier fix having pit coverings or um, washing truck tires than some of the other larger things that we have little or less control over. When we think about um, having corn coming in, especially as you look at countries that have ASF corn coming in where they have wild boars walking through their fields, how do you control that? So um, we take a lot of steps to control what we can and mitigate what we cannot. So I think you I think you touched on some important points there um, worth kind of reiterating that we we don't know in, in a lot of these cases and we don't have it, it, certainly in, in the U.S. Um, the, the data is a little different in other places around the world. Um, we don't know of too many instances where it, it absolutely was the feed that that caused a lot of these things. We see the same thing then, of course, on some of the uh, like the bacterial pathogens, salmonella and whatnot. There, there are times where it's been traced back and and has been found in the feed. And sometimes that feed has been contaminated on the farm by by birds or or pests of some sort or something like that. Every once in a while, it might track itself back. So we're generally not talking about this is a huge known problem in the feed mill. We are talking more about this. We would like it not to be one. And so what do we do to make sure that it's not one or have a plan in place when it, when it does happen? Uh, If I'm correct, I think most of the data in foreign countries where like feed mills have become contaminated, it's not been something inherent to the, the mill ingredients and things coming in as much as it's been some animals broke over there And then somehow that got back on transportation equipment, people, whatever, into the feed mill. And now we've created a cycle. So we've got conversations to be had about, you know, how biosecure should the feed mill be in addition to how biosecure the farms need to be to we often think about protecting the live animals on the farm from what could be coming into it. But sometimes we have to think about, well, a lot of stuff comes back to this feed mill too. Maybe we need to be thinking about protecting it from the live farms, I think is, is a part of that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. We, we always talk about farms themselves. We try to get them as isolated as possible, but those feed mills 
are really an epicenter for so many things, not just the farms, but you have all those ingredient suppliers coming in as well. And so you're right, we've had some studies out of Vietnam looking at ASF specifically. And of the like 17 samples that were ASF positive, one of them came from a feed ingredient and the rest of them primarily were um, centered around boots of workers, the truck cabs themselves, the tires. And so really those are the risks we can focus and control the best and what we found to be more concerning than the feed and feed ingredients themselves. Yep. Once again, my guest today is Olivia Harrison, PhD candidate at Kansas State University working on animal food safety. So continuing down that line, look at we can kind of look at, at two different things that I know that your kind of research group there has focused on. And one of them is how to control the potential presence of pathogen in the feed and how to control or, or clean out or otherwise protect the mill. So let's start with the, the feed itself. What have we found that, that works and we know works well or as well as things are available in order to actually control what's the, the, the feed itself that's going to the animal? Yeah, right now, kind of our gold standard that we find is formaldehyde um, to be that best mitigant when applying it into the feed. Um, And so there's a couple different routes you can look at for that. And so that's implying it at that level. It's usually about six pounds per ton in all batches of feed itself. What we specifically looked at was we had flushes. Um, So we would have, you know, our positive batch of feed go through that we purposefully inoculated and we would try to flush that system with um, our different treatments. And then we would have our regular feed going through uninoculated and looking at that contamination. And so when we would do formaldehyde flushes, we would do five times the recommended dose um, in our batch of feed. So it would be about 380 grams of um, formaldehyde for every 50 pounds of ground corn we would throw in there, which is why we were wearing those full face respirators <laughs> with, su- with such high levels. Um, and for the most part, we found it was successful. We saw reductions in the overall presence of our virus quantities. Um, and for the most part, we found that when we did a bioassay, so feeding those pigs, those samples that we would collect throughout Formaldehyde was successful. No pigs got sick, except when we look at PERS. PERS was kind of our difficulty throughout the entire project. We weren't able to find it through um, PCR really well. And then we were like, okay, hopefully we won't have any problems. We can just kind of say we don't know enough about PCR, especially in feed. We have some interference with those samples sometimes. And then we get to the bioassay and all of a sudden we have all these PERS positive pigs Um you know, popping up. And so PERS really, I think, will be the challenge just because for some reason, even though SVA has been a lot hardier a virus than PERS, it's almost hiding in the feed itself. Um, So definitely something to consider going forward when we're thinking about taking just samples throughout the mills, seeing what that positive or negative status is, but then also hopefully we don't have as high of inoculation dose as what we were looking at. Um, But you know, that PERS could possibly pop positive if we do see it um, in the feed itself. Sure. And that and that kind of reiterates that idea, right, of, of why it's so important to keep stuff out. And again, it's not that we have a whole lot of instances of, or, or in some cases, any instances of data saying that 
this has naturally happened in the environment where feed has been a concern. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that turns into people wanting to put their head in. It's never happened. It's not, you know, it, this is not something we need to worry about. And it's just, and, and I think the area is somewhere in between, right? Where it's, no, it's, it's not something that we need to all go, go nuts and, you know, establish all kinds of new regulations and rules and spend billions of dollars, maybe, but it's not something we shouldn't think about because like you just said, we have things that are the gold standard that don't work on everything. Um, and, and I think it's interesting too. And obviously there are some concerns out there on that gold standard. Um, how long we'll be allowed to use formaldehyde. We know that that's a, a concern um, when we have EPA regulations and things like that as a potential. Um, but I think it's also worth mentioning that a lot of the work that you guys have done has really focused on those, those, um, basically additive mitigants because we know in, in our industry, unlike in some other places in, in pet food or human food, the idea of, you know, heat treating and everything isn't, we ran it through the pellet mill, isn't going to be enough because our systems aren't sealed after that. And we're cooling with ambient air. And if the environment has been impacted or the truck has been impacted, um, not everything is being kept sterile after that point. So, um, a lot of times we we hear that right we hear well if you you know condition up to this temperature and this time and everything else then you you'll you know kill this virus or whatnot it's like yeah but these ingredients that we can add that stay with the feed that continuous protection is something really nice to have yeah and we we did do pelleting as well you know we were in the FSRC so we basically try to do everything we could uh, while we were in there and so we were pelleting to 180. Um, Fahrenheit. So obviously a pretty high conditioning temperature. And exactly like you said, you know, you see the reduction in viral presence, but we would look at samples within our cooler, our environmental samples, and we were still seeing presence of viruses. Um, those were not necessarily still infectious. Um, we didn't have the capacity to do a bioassay on everything, but we feel pretty confident there were really low levels of virus in there. But still, if you're just taking samples within your mill of, you know, as a positive negative negative status, you're still probably going to find it once you have that initial contamination. Yep. Which is a great segue into the next part of it then. So that's that's trying to control it in the feed and keep it, you know, from from getting to the animals. But in the you know worst case scenario where we've identified we do have an environmental contamination, our, our mill is now contaminated, not just the, the ingredients in it or the, the feed that we've made. If, if that's contaminated, then the mill is as well, especially with some of these things that really like to hang around once they get into facilities, whether that be a, a barn or at a truck or the feed mill itself. So what has been shown to... It work the best. I'm not even going to say like just straight work because I don't think we're there yet. Um, what are some of the you know promising things on if you did have to decontaminate a facility from some sort of a biological agent of concern? What what works and beyond the what we've already talked about here at the top of go get your power washer and your bleach and and try to wash your whole feed mill, which nobody in the real world is ever going to be able to do. Yeah, exactly. You know, we always have the ideal of it'd be so great if you could wash your entire feed mold, but realistically, no one's going to be able to get through all of the piping we have going on to clean all of that out. So we looked at two different treatments. We had portable heaters coming in. So um, we had one that was within our main room 
um, that we had most of our equipment in, and then we would have one directed up a downspout to kind of replicate what you would see in like your downspouts and dis- distrib- distributor heads. Um, and so that was one of our treatments. And we had one where we removed as much organic matter as possible with vacuum. So it wasn't perfect, but we would try to get as much of that picked up as possible and then do the heat or we would just do the heat without removing any of that organic matter. Um, So those were two of our treatments. And then our other ones looked at chlorine dioxide application. So we would fog. Um, Again, we had two setups. We had a stationary fogger in our little room that had the most equipment. And then a portable one would, again, direct down that distributor head into the downspout itself. And same thing with our heat. We looked at that with organic matter removal and without organic matter removal. And just from a PCR perspective, neither of them worked as good as, of course, as our complete um, decontamination, which is to be expected. Obviously, we're doing some pretty harsh chemicals throughout that. So um, it's not surprising that that is going to, again, be our gold standard. But um, again, when we do that through a bioassay, looking at those results, we found that um for the most part, they worked. When we were looking at SVA and PEDV, we didn't see any infection in those pigs. But again, we had those PERS-positive pigs um, just randomly pop up that we can't explain as we weren't finding it in the PCR results. So, you know, for two of the viruses, we saw really great results. And for PERS, honestly, it's unexplainable basically from start to finish, but um, they definitely do have some success and are at least a better option than doing nothing, um, which I think is always our standard or our meter we should be looking at. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Of course, the the actual process of trying to, to heat treat a, a full-size commercial facility or put chlorine dioxide into it, which I can just, I can, I can hear all the, the, safety people out there just just like tensing up thinking you want to do you want to do what um it's done that the heat treatment stuff is done um very seldom in in large commercial mills it's done in flour mills and things like that for those that aren't aware um when i was actually in in graduate school uh, one of the faculty members in grain science um he would run a, a heat treatment workshop every year and we would do the uh to the flour mill and the feed mill at Grain Science. And to do so required bringing in some very, very large generators, some very, very large propane-fired heaters, um, bringing uh, basically tenting, well, not exactly tenting. We, we basically had to shut down all the windows with plywood and things like that, run uh, these big, um, basically fabric, uh, duct work through all the facilities, fans everywhere and everything like that. And it was quite the operation to get something that that hot. And that was still in a, a small, you know, larger than the, the pilot facility you were doing yours in, but still much, much, much smaller than anything in the real world. So even doing those on a large scale is is usually a, a, a big thing to try to over to, to try to do, which just leads us back into the kind of the overall idea of keep it from getting in the facility in the first place is always going to be the the best thing that we can do, right? So those those ideas of monitoring the trucks and the traffic and the boots and the people and hygienic zoning and all those kind of things are going to probably be our, our best tools because once it's in there, it's there like, you know, it sounds like there's some promising possibilities, but the, uh, the, the, 
not something anybody want to have has to wants to have to undertake. I guess is the way to put it. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you know, you would bring in all of that equipment just for heating a smaller mill, and we were heating basically. 10 pieces of equipment specifically, like not even equipment, but 10 areas we had to worry about. And still we were finding difficulties. So it, so it is always a challenge when we were thinking about just the large scale and volume of these feed mills and really all the nooks and crannies that dust can get into, which we know dust can carry virus particles really well. Um, and so having an even heat throughout those areas is incredibly difficult when we think about those larger mills. Well, we certainly, as as an industry, I'll, I'll speak for the industry on behalf, we certainly appreciate the work you guys are doing. Personally, I really appreciate the work you guys are doing because that means nobody wants to try to do that work with me here. And I don't have to deal with all the stuff that you've just described. They, people every once in a while call and I said, so there's a good group with uh, Cassie Jones and Chad Palk and Charles Stark. I'll give you their phone numbers. Um, you call them because I don't want to do all that. It's time for our famous three. So I appreciate your time. We're going to finish up with just a, a few general questions. Um, we always kind of like to ask our, our guests um, just to kind of give people maybe something else to think about. So uh, the first question I'm, I'm going to ask is in your area that you've kind of worked in, in your area of expertise, and if people want to learn more about this type of, of information, what would you suggest would be some good resources for them to potentially go look at if they want to educate themselves further on the topic of, you know, how to keep their their feed mills and, and their their feed that's going out safe? Yeah. Um, so, you know, this whole area is relatively new coming out from the PEDV introduction in 2013, 2014. So yet to have a book to really help us and be our, our source for material. So um, definitely Google Scholar, honestly, is how the start of all of this information, um, you know, uh, there's a transboundary special issue from 2020, 2021 area um, that has a lot of great articles and information to kind of dip your toe in the water. Uh, Scott D has also focused a lot of his work through Pipestone on different mitigant usage as well. So he has some good articles to use as a reference, as well as Megan Niederwerder when she was here at K-State, looking specifically at ASF um, work as well. So a lot of it is just diving through Google and everything to find those papers. Um, There is a feed safety um, page on the K-State article on the K-State um, website as well that we have a list of all of our resources that we have and any published data we have, which is also a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. There's some really there's some really good info there that that I've um, I would again I, I would echo. Uh, folks can go take a look at, and I've I've sent a number of people to as well, and even link to it in some of like my coursework here, um, the feed safety resources page there. You can basically just Google Kansas State feed safety resources. It'll pop right up. And there's a, there's a, a good group of things there for people to, uh, to look at and maybe even build some of their own programs off of. So the next question would be a more general kind of a, of a resource or something like that. So not necessarily in your area, but in just kind of overall, you know, being a, being a student, we know we've got grad students at different programs that kind of like to listen to this podcast as well as the other ones um, under kind of the Wisenetics umbrella. What are 
are there any particular things, whether they be newsletters or websites or things like that, that you found to be really helpful as kind of through your journey of, you know, keeping you, you know, informed, up to date, that sort of thing? Yeah. So um, obviously I'm in a pretty niche area, but I spend a lot of my time with the KSU Swine grad students as well. So, um, you know, I listen to the Swine Net podcast, everything here on that nutrition side, just to stay up to date. I think it's important to um, at least understand the basics of what's going on in there as it it's plays such a role in what we do in the feed mill and knowing the ingredients coming in. Um, but then also um, one of my favorite resources I have from school that isn't necessarily what I do. Ian who wrote a great epi book um, as kind of a veterinary epidemiology um, book. And it's a great resource that we use in my classes of just understanding transmission, like start to finish how we should look at um, those epi studies itself and understanding some of those pitfalls we sometimes see as we're tracing the transmission of these viruses and disease going backwards um, and some of the difficulties and challenges we have there. Excellent. Excellent. So last question then is in, in your different journeys of, you know, working with different faculty and working with different professionals in the industry and things like that, when you have worked with people that you've really come to, you know, respect and, and really enjoy working with them, what would you say are some of the attributes that you find that you think are things like, yeah, that's something I want to mirror as I move forward in my own career as far as um, being a successful professional? Yeah, um, I think this is something, you know, they always push you in in grad school and something I struggle with is asking questions. Um, I just struggle with it. I feel like it's something I always push myself towards um, to ask more questions. And so I think that is one of the biggest things because that's what starts all of those conversations. If someone has that simple question they come up with and all of a sudden you have three studies pop up or, um, you know, you have all these resources suddenly available because you asked that simple question. So going forward, that's always something I strive to do more is ask those questions and be part of that conversation. That's a, yeah, that, that's a great answer. Um, I, with the caveat of, you know, not wanting to turn into a, a three-year-old who asks why every two seconds and becomes annoying, I I have said many times that, especially when we're talking about students that might want to go to grad school or folks that want to go into an R&D type of a field, even, even if it's not through grad school, I've often said that one of the things I look for is curiosity, right? Someone who's curious about things and then will go find the way to learn, you know, that, oh, I spent four hours last night going down a rabbit hole on the internet because I saw something about and I don't even care what it is. I don't care if it's something related to your specific area of expertise or there was something about pirates. And I spent four you know, hours learning about pirates and, or something because something interested me. I think that's a heck of an attribute to have and, and that curiosity that will drive you to go look for information. So I think, I think the asking questions and wanting to know answers is a, huge, is a huge part of it. And then finding out how to go about doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I very much appreciate your time. Again, my guest today has been Olivia Harrison, a PhD candidate in animal food safety at Kansas State University. Thanks, Olivia, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm Adam Farinholtz. This has been the Feed Science Podcast.